You're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. Christopher Miller, author of the book The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine, and the Financial Times' Ukraine correspondent, joined us on stage this week. Chris has had a lengthy career covering events unfolding in Ukraine and spoke to us from his personal experience of the war and the country's response to it. He went into detail on issues he covers in his book and gave advice for reporters in general. The link to his book is in the description of this podcast. The talk was hosted by me, Charlotte Marr, on Thursday the 21st of September in the Bellingcat Discord server. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hello, everyone. I'm excited to introduce you to Christopher Miller, who has joined us on stage today. Christopher has been a foreign correspondent in Ukraine for over 13 years. He currently works at the Financial Times, covering the ongoing conflict, but also worked for Politico, BuzzFeed News and the Kyiv Post over the course of his career. He also happens to be the author of our Discord book club's book of the month, The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. Christopher is going to speak on the background to his book and his personal experience of the lead up to and current invasion. A quick reminder for our audience to stay respectful in the chat when speaking on ongoing conflict. Whilst he's talking, please put all questions in the chat. I'll be monitoring the chat as the talk goes on and I'll ask them to Christopher once we move into the Q&A section of the discussion. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christopher. Uh, the mic is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak with you all. It's really nice to be here and with such a, a great organization um, that I've worked with in the past and followed for so many years and has um, played such a major role in, in covering Russia's uh, war against Ukraine. We'll try to keep uh, this short um, to open it up to questions and, and make it a little bit more of a discussion, which um, I, I personally enjoy a little bit more. And, and I'm sure that there are people who have a lot of questions and topics they'd like to chat about. So um, to begin, the 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 book <laughs> was, um, you know, in, in the introduction of the book, I say, that it's in some ways the book I've always wanted to write about Ukraine. And in some ways, it's the book that I never wanted to write about Ukraine. And, you know, in, in many ways, it's the book that I always wanted to write because I have spent so much time in the country. I, I, I have really come to love Ukraine. It's a second home to me. I spent two years living in eastern Ukraine in the city of Bakhmut when it was um, still going by its um, Soviet name, uh, Artyomovsk or Artyomovsk. Um, back in 2010 through 2012. And, you know, at that time, as a Peace Corps volunteer and in pre-war time, you know, this was a very um, quiet um, place out in far eastern Ukraine. I was having a very interesting personal experience as a Peace Corps volunteer, taking a break from journalism to come here and, and volunteer to work in schools and with non-governmental organizations in eastern Ukraine. And I was doing a lot of reading. And having these really incredible experiences, some of which are outlined in the early chapters of the book, where I got to know about uh, and learn uh, a lot about the Ukrainian people, Ukrainian culture, studying Russian, studying a little bit of Ukrainian, um, learning a little bit of Surzhik, a mix of the two. And I was reading a lot of books also by uh, Americans who had served in the Peace Corps. 
one of which was um, Peter Hessler's book called Rivertown about his experience in China. And so I thought, you know what, this is a really interesting place to be. At that time, I didn't know how you know, unique or original my experience would be, but I began writing everything down. I kept a very active blog uh, at the time and wrote about my experiences there, and I would share them with family and, and friends back in the United States. I was doing a little bit of travel writing and culture writing at the time, and uh, uh, despite the Peace Corps not really wanting me to, I, I would pitch them and sell stories on the side to help fund some of my travels around Ukraine. And so I had this, um, by, the, by the end of my two years in Ukraine, I had this really sizable portfolio of unpublished written work um, that was really meant for a small circle of people. And by 2013, I had decided to stay in Kiev, get back into journalism. But instead of moving back to the United States, I, I decided to uh, find work as a foreign correspondent. So that is when I began working at the Kiev Post. And, you know, it wasn't um, long after that the Euromaidan revolution began. And that really uh, had a major impact on my career, really sped up, um, uh, you know, the path that I was on working for a small time outlet uh, to uh, working with mainstream media, um, you know, and and really um you know, it, it marked also a, a major change from, you know, pre-war Ukraine to this more tumultuous period, but also a period of, of great growth. And, you know, that I, I suppose is when some of the parts of the book where I said, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's also the book that I didn't want to write uh, come into play. Um, I, I have kept, as I said, you know, notes and journals and blog posts over the years. And then, of course, I've had years of reporting and a, a lot of that reporting um, left on the cutting room floor after editors have got. And able to um, put it on the page. And so I thought many times over the years that I might use um, my experiences to describe Ukraine in a book and the the type of book that I always wanted to write was what I've put out now in The War Came to Us, um, more of a narrative-driven book about Ukraine from somebody with experience on the ground. And that's because, you know, in my own uh, education of, of, of Ukraine and its people, I've read a lot of books by uh, great uh, historians and academics like and Applebaum, Timothy Snyder, um, Sergei Plocky. And they're all great books, but they're all very um, history focused or academic in nature. And, you know, I uh, personally have always learned a lot from books that were written by people who uh, spent a significant amount of time um, getting outside of the capitals and, and, you know, off the beaten path to discover places and, and to write about them um, uh, having, you know, these, these really incredible experiences. And so that's what I set out to do with this book. I felt like that was what was missing in this, you know, canon of great uh, Ukrainian um, books. And, and something also that really captured the past decade in Ukraine and, 
you know, the, the, the past 10 years here have seen uh, an uprising turn into a full-blown revolution, uh, the annexation of a piece of territory. Um, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, I think the first serious um, annexation of territory since the Second World War, not to mention a first invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces, followed by a full-scale invasion and the largest land war in Europe since the Second World War. So it's it's a really um, important period of time in Ukraine's history. A lot has happened in this just this short period of time that that's not even a decade long. And I have been fortunate enough to experience all of it uh, over the period of time that I've been here while living here in Ukraine, uh, in Kiev, um, for most of that time where I'm speaking to you from now and for and working for major uh, media outlets that have been uh, generous enough to to allow me to to stick around here and and um, uh, do a lot of the reporting that you all have read in the book. And so that was, you know, the 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 reason for putting out this book um, in the first place, right? To sort of provide a story of the country that I felt hadn't hadn't been told uh, in a in a comprehensive way, um, in a narrative type style, and then also to really highlight uh, the the um, the efforts of the Ukrainian people and stories of the people who I have met over the years. And uh, as I as I moved from from uh, Bakhmut to Kiev and later to uh, report in Crimea and elsewhere across the country, I really wanted to pack the book full of all of these really incredible stories of the Ukrainians who, uh, you know, lent their time to me, told me their stories. And, you know, I, I've, I've, and, and put them in, in, in all one place um, that I think collectively through a series of uh, vignettes and using me as the vehicle to sort of bring readers on this journey uh, would present a uh, comprehensive picture of what I think are arguably the most important uh, years in Ukraine's modern history. So, uh that's how the book got, um, well, that's how the book was conceptualized. Uh, it was a project that began only shortly before the full-scale invasion. Uh, my publisher, Bloomsbury, reached out in January of 2022 and said, we have an interest in, 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 in a Ukraine book. Do you have any ideas? Uh, if so, you know, pitch something to us. And, and I had a little bit of this uh, written for many years ago, but obviously nothing about the full-scale invasion at that point. So to their credit, they had an interest in Ukraine before the full-scale invasion, but it was only after that full-scale invasion when I really uh, sat down and and was able to write the book in earnest. And so what you're reading was actually, um, uh, you know, a, a little bit hurried, uh, but, um, you know, a project that was put together in about eight months total. And now it's been out for um, a couple of months. And I, I hope that many of you have read it. And I think I'll stop there and, and open it up to conversation. Um, and, and because I think that's the best way to talk about what, what is happening right now. If you have questions um, that are more urgent and, and would like to talk about what Zelensky is doing in Washington and why that's important or um, the counteroffensive or, um, you know, questions specific to the book, whether that's process or characters that you are interested in.
Thank you so much for, for that talk um, and for giving us a little background on the book itself. Um, I know there's so many questions in the chat, but first I wanted to ask for anyone who's in the audience who hasn't read your book, how, how might they get ha their hands on it? Sure. It's available uh, at most uh, major bookstores in the UK and the US. Some fr friends in uh, Berlin, Paris, uh, the Netherlands, where else? A few other places in the EU have said that they've found it at English language bookstores there. Um, Amazon obviously carries it. Bloomsbury has it on their website. But if you really want to support independent bookstores and a few of my uh, favorites in particular, um, I can I can share a link after this, um, or maybe I can share it with you now, and and you can you can share it. Um, but it's, uh, it, you know, in, in all of the usual places and then a few very specific ones, I, I think. Fab. Um, great. Thank you so much for putting it in that. We've got so many questions. Um, OK, I'm going to start with Eridice, who's a very uh, active person on our Discord server. They've said, all right, Charlie, leaving one of the many questions I had while reading the book. One of the challenges that the Ukrainian society as a whole has been facing since war broke in the Donbass, and especially now with the full invasion that will have a very lasting damage, is the consequences of traumatic stress. You cover this a bit in one of the chapters, but I want to ask to expand upon it, wanting to know how the Ukrainian society has adapted to it, what aid it provides to help people, both soldiers and civilians, overcome the trauma, and which organizations are actively working to improve access to treatment. Thanks a lot, and congratulations for the book. It was an emotional read. Uh, well, thank you for reading it, um, and uh, thank you for your question. It, that, that is a really, really important topic uh, that I probably did not put enough time and energy into in, in describing it and ta talking it, uh, about it in the book, but part of that reason is because um, it is an ongoing trauma for so many Ukrainians, and it's a really difficult thing for many of them to speak about. Um, you know, at the at the early stage of Russia's war uh, in 2014, there really was still this um, idea that mental health and things like PTSD were were topics that were taboo, sort of off limits um, to to discuss. Um, Ukrainian society, um, more so then than 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 now, but but still is is um, uh, you know a, a, a society that I think still has just a slight hangover from the Soviet era and um, is is filled with tough people that don't um, often want to show their vulnerability. And you know I remember writing that chapter uh, or reporting reporting that. Um, uh, what you read in that chapter in the book many years ago, and I was uh, I was actually speaking to a psychologist who was describing to me how he was trained to deal with mental health and and to uh, help people um, uh, with their mental health issues, and so he felt comfortable going to war as a psychologist, thinking I can handle it mentally. I'm 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 trained for this. At this point in the stage talk, Chris's connection dropped. 
and he returned back after a couple of minutes. All right. Um, I see somebody asking if, if I'm in Ukraine. Yes, I'm in Ukraine. I'm in Kiev at the moment. Uh, maybe that's why uh, the connection isn't great. I apologize. But I'll, I'll, finish, I'll finish the question um, by, by saying that there are, there are several organizations uh, now that have come about in the last couple of years that are uh, on helping people with mental health issues. Um, the first lady of Ukraine, Elena Zelenska, has has been a, a huge advocate for mental health, and uh, her organization is doing a lot of work. Um, there's there's still there's still a, a a lot of help needed, and I think there there's a lot to be done still um, to 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 make Ukrainians feel more comfortable in in asking for help. Um, a lot of the the, the medical um, people who I speak with here, um, say, you know, a lot of people are still, um, not comfortable reaching out for that help. And, and, and that's, um, uh, you know, one of the, one of the major issues or hurdles rather standing in the way of, of that help. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop there because I know there are other questions and I don't want this to, to cut out and not have answered anymore. No problem. No problem. Um, right. Sarah asks, Thanks for coming, Christopher. My question is, from the book, I had the impression that you were going into war zones, pre-Kia Post, as a freelancer without any sort of cover from a newsroom who would keep an eye on you, assist you in dangerous situations. Was all of that self-funded? Oh, uh, good question. So I am very lucky now to have the support of the Financial Times who provides me you know, security support and you know, various um, pieces of equipment that I that I might need, not to mention uh, insurance uh, when I go to uh, well, even while I'm here in Kiev, but but when I when I go to the front line, the first, the first couple of years uh, covering the war in 2014, 2015, actually, I think 2016, probably, probably through through 2018, I, 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 I did my reporting on the front line largely without the support of a large organization, without, uh, without insurance, um, without a security team. I was mostly a freelancer at the time, and that's a big reason why. Um, insurance for journalists in war zones is very expensive, and a lot of, a lot of organizations don't want to risk hiring freelancers. Uh, I was I uh, because because of the risk associated and the cost associated with with paying for insurance. Um, I was uh, fortunate in 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 a sense that for a few years I was on a contract with Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, as their their correspondent in Kiev. Um, I, I was I was not staff though, and so what that meant was they would provide me with some security support, I would say limited, limited support when I would do reporting around the front line. But generally, uh, I would have to pay for for my um, medical care, uh, and everything else out of pocket. And I, I do think that is uh, a major issue facing uh, freelance journalists, especially today, most of the major organizations here, like the Financial Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, you know, they they do provide a lot of support for their um, staff reporters here, and uh, right now also for their Ukrainian fixers, which I think is really important. Um, 
But a lot of freelancers here still do not have uh, insurance um, benefits. They really are operating without much, if any, safety net. And, um, you know, I think uh, I'll, I'll, I'll end this by saying one really important thing um, that I think isn't happening on um, uh, or, or as, as, as widely as it should be is, um, uh, providing, providing these benefits, um, not only for foreign freelancers, um, who are coming here and reporting, but, uh, the Ukrainians who are supporting those reporters and even many of the staff reporters, um, uh, you know, some of the staff of the, uh, the Ukrainian staff of the major papers do get that support. And, and, um, we at the financial times also provide that support for anyone who is working with me. Um, but, but many aren't getting that. And, you know, I think that we, we look at the Western coverage of what is happening here and we think that it's, it's, you know, just the bylines on the story who are producing the work. And it's actually a large team of, uh, oftentimes drivers, um, who are Ukrainian fixers, who are Ukrainian, um, foreign security people, and, and not all of them have the uh, level of support or provided the level of support that um, Western correspondents have. So ho- hopefully that answers your question. I think it does. Sarah says, Christopher, that was whack. Um, okay. Uh, along that thread. Uh, I'll, I'll, add, I'll add one thing just ahead. because, um, I have been discussing with some of my, 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 um, correspondent friends, the, the early days of Russia's war back in 2014. And a lot of our conversations center around how we, we at the time felt almost invincible and, and really naive uh, about what we were covering. We were not war correspondents. And I don't refer to myself as a war correspondent still. I'm a Ukraine correspondent. I've written about politics. I've written about war, but I also write about culture. I write about art. I write about um, basically everything that has to do with the country. Um, and so I'm more of a uh, Ukraine specialist rather than a war correspondent who ships out and goes, you know, who, who jumps around from war uh, to war. And so in 2014 and 2015, without a lot of that support that I was just discussing, um, we and I, you know, made some decisions that I think in hindsight now um, I, I, I wouldn't have made. I did take some risks without really understanding um, the, the, the dangers involved. Um, but I'm also glad that I did make many of these decisions. Otherwise, I wouldn't have uh, some of the stories that I that you've read in the book. And in a couple of cases, I might not have been able to find out some of the things that I did reporting from these places. Not that we recommend anybody uh, <laughs> in the Discord server uh, to follow suit. Going on along on the uh, reporting thread, uh, Kulavelli asked, there were many instances in your book where you described to write a quick dispatch to your editors. I'd like to hear how long dispatches you were sending to your editors about the various situations you found yourself in when following the developments of the revolution and the war. How was the editorial process like for you when covering things at at or near the front line? Oh, that's a good question. I think it varied. It depended on the situation. It depended on how much time I had. It depended on um, uh, my security, where I, where I was located. It depended also on the events unfolding in front of me. And oftentimes those uh, well, this, the 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 seriousness of the event, of the event um, is what might warrant 
um, a thousand words or twelve or or, or twelve hundred words um, as opposed to eight hundred words. Um, it used to be that the eight hundred word dispatch was sort of the foreign correspondence sweet spot, and I think that that still is is uh, sort of the case, although. I think with um, most stories being published online and not necessarily going into a newspaper, we've been afforded a little bit more space. In in the throes of the revolution, I was working as an editor and reporter at the Kiev Post and helping to manage a team of news reporters who were largely in the field and on the square that entire time. But I was also filing as a stringer to the Times of London, the Telegraph newspaper, the Independent uh, and, and an outlet, an online outlet called um, Global Post at the time. And so some of my dispatches were very short because all I had was 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And I would pop into the McDonald's on the Maidan and use the Wi-Fi to um, uh, just type up, you know, a quick um, 500 or 600 words and say, this is all I can afford to do right now. Um, if you have any context you want to fill it out with, um, please feel free to do so. And then I would send it away. Um, other times, if I had a little bit more time at the end of the night and I had, uh, for example, maybe several really interesting interviews that day and voices that I wanted to to highlight, I would ask for a little bit more space and I would typically file long. I um, Brevity is not my strong suit. Um, I've been scolded by more than one editor over the years um, about how long I write. Uh, most of what I would file is is about 200 to 400 words too long. And so I was sending articles that were or dispatches that were a thousand or even 1400 words um, on a couple of, case, uh, of occasions, maybe even a little bit longer. But they would typically get whittled down to around 800 or 900 words and then published. I think that is uh, every journalist's uh, problem, to be honest, uh, always reporting too much. We've had a few questions actually along the lines of um, what advice would you give to aspiring journalists, particularly because your own path was uh, somewhat non-standard? What advice would you give to aspiring journalists? Yeah, um, well, I think there are several things in, in no particular order. Um, you know, I, I really really like to, to, um, or I have a habit of becoming obsessed with things. I, um, I find something that is, is interesting and I latch onto it and I want to know everything about it. Um, that can be an issue. It can be a place in my, uh, case it was Ukraine. And, you know, after my initial, uh, two years of living in, in Ukraine, I hadn't had enough. I wanted more of it. And, uh, I decided to stay and really, you know, work hard at becoming um, a subject matter expert, right? And Ukraine being that subject. So I think in the context of journalism, you want to find something that you can be great at, that maybe you can be uh, the best at. Um, you know, think think of a beat that sets you apart from others. Maybe it's a topic or a place that is underreported where you could really you could really dig in and 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 be the person who um uh, shines a light on on this issue through a series of stories um over the course of uh you know months or or even even years um 
the other thing I, th- I think is, is, you know, allowing yourself time. Don't think that, you know, um, journalism, uh, or, or, or being successful in journalism is going to happen overnight or even in a year, um, or thinking that you, you can run off to a war a and write about you it and your career will be made. Uh, it does take time to build sources, to build trust, to build a portfolio. And unfortunately, I think today there are fewer jobs in foreign correspondence, if that's what you are interested in, than, than, than previously. Um, and so that makes it a little bit harder. Also, um, the, the security reason or the, the security um, issues that we discussed earlier means that you're going to have a harder time as a freelancer um, parachuting into a place and pitching stories to outlets who, uh, which have staff on the ground here. So, you know, I, I had a, a, a young man who um, I, I met in London who came to my talk there at the Frontline Club who said he was interested in coming to Ukraine to report and, and asked me if, if I thought he should do that. And he said he didn't have any experience in Ukraine, um, but was really passionate about the issue. And my advice to him was, if, if that's what you really, really believe that you need to do, then so be it. I'm not going to you know, try to dissuade you from coming, but I would urge you to be as safe as possible. Um, but you know, what I think is best is to find something that um, you can make your own, um, a beat that you can really make your own, and, and, and you know, work to be the best that you can be at it. And you know, I think that over, over time, um, you know, you, you will, uh, build yourself a nice little, uh, career in, 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 in covering that issue. I also think just in, in practical, some practical advice, um, uh, be tenacious. Don't take no for an answer. Um, if you think you're done for the day, you're not maybe work another hour, uh, keep calling, don't let people hang up on you. And, um, uh, what else? Take notes, write everything down. Um, don't be, don't be a 21st century reporter in the sense that you think you can just, uh, take, um, an audio recording of an interview and then put it through a program like Trent and then, um, be able to, to comprehend what was, um, what was said to you. Um, I, I find that I retain information much better when I am not only recording it for accuracy later on, but also taking copious, uh, if a little bit messy handwritten notes and, um, keep all of them, never throw anything away. Um, create a portfolio of, of your, um, your notes and your published work, keep them separate, but keep them organized. And if later down the road, um, you happen to want to write a book, uh, you will be able to find those notes and that information, um, very quickly. And, uh, you know, it, it also, it's, it's a way of, of preserving history. There's a lot that we are never able to actually publish that I think is still very important. And, and a lot of that stuff is, is what, um, fills out my book. And, um, you know, I, I, I did that in keeping all of my notes, um, not only uh, my handwritten ones organized, but I would also type them up and then put them in organized digital folders and save them, uh, on to several, uh, external hard drives so that I can easily access them. Um, so th- those are a few, uh, a few, a few pointers and and some advice. Some 
gems of wisdom there. Thank you so much. Um, this one is a little specific to the book, um, and I'm it probably won't make it into the podcast just because of my pronunciation here. Um, but Haracha Gracha asks, I was surprised that the school where you work didn't want the fund grants you wanted to secure it for it through the Peace Corps. I guess the saying, Dayutbury doesn't always apply. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. <laughs> Uh, it's actually it's a it's a good question, and and um, I'll I'll take it because um, I can ask I can answer that specifically, but I can also put it in broader context. Um, so the school that I worked at was a really small village school in the village of then it was called Krasny, now it's called Ivanovsky, and some people may have heard of it because there was a lot of fighting there. It's just on the western. Uh, the western edge of Bakhmut. Um, and it's so close that I used to ride my bike from my apartment in central Bakhmut to um, my village school, and it would take me about 10 minutes up uh, a pretty uh, a pretty nasty hill. And, um, you know, this was a school that had grades um, kindergarten through 11, and there were only 100 students total. So they had some very specific needs and they had, um, that, that I thought they, um, or specific things that I thought they, they needed that should maybe have priority over, um, some vanity projects. But what was important to them was actually the appearance of having, um, a, a foreign volunteer and having, um, this sort of, uh, shiny school that would, um, uh, maybe attract new students and 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 we differed on on what uh, what what should be um, or what grant money should be used for. I, I, I saw a need for more practical things like creating um, some new bathrooms and and some new little infrastructure projects, and they wanted um, uh, a, a new trophy room and uh, a new gymnasium and um you know the the other reason that these didn't come to fruition is the projects that they were asking for were were just much too expensive the the grants that we write at at peace corps typically range from a few hundred dollars to a few thousand dollars and what they were asking for was 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 several several thousand dollars um or or tens of thousands of dollars and and um you know part of part of this was their just misunderstanding what the peace corps uh, is meant to do. And, and that's not necessarily their fault. I don't, I don't know if it was explained well to them and they had never had a Peace Corps volunteer before. So I was the first American that they had ever met and they had you know never heard of this organization until, uh, I think, um, someone in town mentioned it to the person, uh, the man who would be my counterpart, um, at the time. Um, but I think this is also something that's at the time, and this was back in 2010 and 11 was, was somewhat typical of, of, uh, not only schools, but organizations and, and, um, government institutions, uh, in the, uh, pre Euromaidan era, they, they, they cared a lot about how they were viewed and the appearance and the sort of, um, you know, yeah, that, you know, how they, how they appeared to the outside rather than, um, uh, projects that might make the, uh, infrastructure of the school better or, or, um, uh, a place that would, would be, um, a little bit more functional. Thanks so much for answering that, Chris. And apologies again for my pronunciation. Subtle Knife has asked a question. Um, he's one of our one of our mods here. Uh, also uh, has asked a question that I'm really interested in as well. 
How do you think the relationship between the people of the Donbass and those of the rest of the country has developed since 2014 and then since the full-scale invasion? Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. I think, you know, if you've if you've read the book, you you see that there really was a disconnect between the people who consider themselves the people of the Donbass and uh, much of the rest of the country there, you know, th- th- I, at the same time, I think that this, this sort of myth that was pushed by Ukrainian politicians and uh, Western observers that there were two Ukraines, um, an Eastern Ukraine and a Western Ukraine, and, and um, those being divided into regions that spoke Russian and spoke Ukrainian was false. Um, but people in Eastern Ukraine really did feel disconnected from Kiev and especially far Western Ukraine and cities like Ternopil and, 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 uh, Lviv, um, you know, they felt marginalized in many, in many, uh, ways. Um, you know, they, they felt as though a lot of people did not view them as true, uh, Ukrainians, um, that, that they were pro-Russian, and and those things aren't 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 true. Um, many of my friends and the people who I knew considered themselves um, and identified themselves as Ukrainians. They had strong regional identities um, as well, and they were very skeptical of Kiev and the central government there. Uh, but they were not pro-Russian. Most people I knew uh, had no desire to live under Russian rule. If they went to Russia, it was often to see family or for business reasons. Um, they they saw more opportunity in Ukraine, even Eastern Ukraine. And at the time that I lived in Eastern Ukraine, between 2010 and 2012, uh, you know, the region was actually um, developing more than it had in years previous because of, of Viktor Yanukovych being from that region. So even though he was stealing billions of dollars, he was um, building uh, new new new. Um, infrastructure and, and and there were new projects that that breathed a little bit of of new life into Donetsk region in particular. Um, Lugansk always had it pretty tough and and didn't see that same kind of um, uh, build up at the time. Uh, but since 2014, well let me let me say this in 2014 there there were um, moments when there was tension between uh, Eastern and Western Ukrainians, and a lot of Western Ukrainians felt as though uh, their boys were being sent off to war in Eastern Ukraine, and and were uh, the ones doing the fighting for a region that they didn't necessarily um, feel respected them, and and questioned whether or not it was worth keeping and fighting for. Um, there was absolutely uh, that that sense among many people that I spoke to who. Uh, were either soldiers fighting in the east at the time, but from Western Ukraine, or families of those uh, soldiers from Western Ukraine who had died. I would say um, since then, and especially since 2022, the country is more united than ever before, and there's this broader understanding of of what it is to be Ukrainian, and uh, a vast majority of Ukrainians 
um, now with great pride um, say that Eastern Ukraine is uh, is Ukraine and the Donbass is Ukraine and Bakhmut is Ukraine. And, um, you know, these are also rallying cries. Um, you know, uh, Bakhmut is Ukraine was a rallying cry and um, Bakhmut Fortress was a rallying cry. And, and so, um, you know, I, I think I think that what Russia has done, uh, the irony is that it's actually united the country um, instead of tearing it apart as it had um, had hopes and uh, making it easier to to invade and break it apart and and subjugate um, uh, Ukraine and Ukrainians. Um, it, you know, Ukrainians uh, now in eastern Ukraine and in southern Ukraine speak uh, Ukrainian um, on a much greater scale. And a lot of them, um, well, well, speaking Ukrainian, knowing Ukrainian previously, but but being predominant Russian speakers um, prior to uh, the full-scale invasion, or, or 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 prior to Russia's first invasion of 2014. Now, now uh, uh, you know it's Ukrainian is so widely spoken, um, uh, even among those regions uh, where where Russian had um, been the predominant language at times. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, a lot of love in the comments uh, for your conversation there. Um, You've only got 15 minutes. If you are listening to this in the Discord, you've only got 15 minutes to put extra questions in. So please put them in the chat now. Um, I've still got quite a lot, though, to get through. Uh, Lot Cat says you have a great photo archive based on your social media. Is there any chance you'll be adding them to your book in the future? Oh, I love that question. I really wanted to add um, a lot of these photos to the book. We honestly just... We, we we didn't have time. Um, one of the thing one of the things I wish I would have had with the book is a little bit more time. Um, there's more that I wanted to add. There's some that I would have loved to cut uh, or to rewrite. Um, and uh, if 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 any of you are journalists or you want to be journalists, the one thing that you uh, will understand is that. Um, uh, when you read your finished work, it never seems or feels finished. You always want to change something. I very much feel that way about the book. I'm very proud of it. And I think it it does what I wanted it to do, which is to um, provide uh, a ground level view of the place and its people. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, I would have loved to get those visuals in because um, I think that really helps place readers in 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 Ukraine and and makes it feel less distant and and less strange, right? It will feel a little bit more normal um, um, to you if you if you can visualize this. So in in the next edition or the paperback, I'm not sure. We're we're, we're discussing what we might what we might do. Um, I in the meantime, I'm I'm posting quite a few of my photos. Uh, from my archives on my Instagram, uh, which is the same as my Twitter handle, Christopher JM, except there's a period between Christopher and JM, in case you want to follow there. I sometimes post some on, on Twitter. I'm looking for a way to uh, share them, maybe maybe on a, on a separate on a separate website or, or some sort of online portfolio so that people can look at them um, and 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 be able to share them um, or view them and, and know what places like uh, Bakhmut, for example, looked like before they were destroyed by by Russian forces. Um, you know, because Bakhmut in particular, which is where I lived for two years, 
is a city that is now almost completely destroyed. It'll never look the way it did when I lived there or, or, or how it looked two years ago. And so, um, you know, I, I never realized that the photos that I took 13 years ago, uh, just as a hobby photographer would end up being so important, but I think that they are because they, they have now, um, essentially, and they now, um, serve as, um, a, a historical record of, of a place that, that no longer exists. Um, so I, this is all to say, I, I don't know if they will go into a future publishing of the book. Um, I've, I don't know, maybe, uh, you know, a, a dream of mine is to, to make a small photo book of them. Um, maybe that will work out. If not, maybe some of them will end up in the paperback version or the second edition of the book. Or uh, if I can f- find a, uh, a way of presenting them uh, online in a, in, a, in, a, in a place that I think shows them well and where I can add some context to them, maybe I'll do that. But I really appreciate uh, that you that you brought them up and 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 also enjoy them. Um, I've really enjoyed going back through, and I've sort of been on this um, my own kind of personal nostalgia tour, going through my archives because I didn't realize that I had taken so many photos, and there are hundreds of them. Thanks for uh, so many questions in the chat, everyone. Um, I think we've got time for about two or three more. Um, a lot of uh, interest in this question. Have you faced any backlash from Ukrainian ultranationalists for your work, especially since you've called out these elements in uh, organizations like Right Sector and Azov? I've saw certain well-known Ukrainian journalists not be, being not happy at all with your book. Um, have you had any backlash from ultranationalists uh, from Ukraine? Sure. Um, well, on the book thing, um, I, I'm none of them have read my book. So anything that is any kind of criticism that is specific to my book, they are um, they are uh, uh, saying this without having read it. And I think that anybody who has read the book will see that this is very much a book that is pro-Ukrainian, that sings the praises of of Ukraine and its people. Um, as as in regards to my uh, reporting on uh, well generally but but uh, specifically on some of the um, uh, groups like right sector or um, the Azov movement or the Azov battalion of 2014 yeah I've faced some criticism and and I'm okay with facing uh, criticism if it is honest and uh, in good faith and someone wants to have a discussion about the framing of a story. But a lot of the attacks have been ad hominem attacks or attacks that have come uh, after uh, several Twitter threads from uh, a few uh, activists um, who are closely aligned with some of the ultranationalist groups uh, who um, are, are not arguing in good faith and haven't actually read my reporting closely, um, certainly have not read the book. Um, and, and then part of the criticism also is um, understandable in the sense that there are a lot of Ukrainians who don't want to see any um, criticism uh, or, or, or stories that could be viewed negatively uh, about their country at a time of war. And that I understand. It's It's a very... 
difficult time. Um, people are very, uh, for obvious reasons, emotional and, um, uh, you know, they've lost their homes, they've lost, um, their cities, they've, they've, uh, lost their loved ones. And, uh, you know, that oftentimes, um, makes people, uh, upset, angry and, and, and looking to, to, uh, place blame. And, and so I understand, um, that, that people are upset and, and, um, not wanting to see some criticism. Um, you know, I think, I think it's, again, it's, it's fair to criticize us in the media. We are public people. We are not perfect. We are human like everyone else. And, uh, I, you know, I think it's, uh, important that we own up to our mistakes when we make them. And I think that, um, I and many of my colleagues have that said, I also think that my reporting has been, um, accurate. I think it's been fair. And, you know, if anybody wants to discuss with me in good faith, um, anything from the past, um, I'm happy to do that. But I think cherry picking articles from many years ago and, and, um, uh, framing them only in the context of today and not considering, um, the moment and certainly not, uh, in which they are written and, and also not, um, um, uh, I think reading beyond headlines is, is unfair. Definitely. Very well put. Um, Gretchen Gretchen in the chat put Kiev independent gave a pretty positive review about your book. There were some minor gripes they had, but it was mostly positive. Um, so a lot of support in the chat as well. Um, I think we have to ask about this seeing as we have the crossover, um, here, um, a lot of interest in the chat about, uh, that, interesting point in your book where Bellingcat history and yours kind of overlapped, um, where you went to the place where the BUK that shot MH17 was fired. Could you speak just a little bit quickly about that experience? Yes. Um, I think that really underscores the, um, the importance of open source investigating and reporting on the ground. Um, you know, what, what Elliot and his colleagues did, uh, and what many of you at Bellingcat did at the time in, uh, tracking the book system and placing it where you did, uh, allowed me and, uh, my, my colleague Roman, uh, uh sorry, not Roman, uh, Roland, um, Oliphant of the Telegraph at the time to sort of narrow down an area that we felt uh, this this book system could have been located and where this missile could have been fired. Um, you know, it's it's that type of open source research in conjunction with um, uh, you know the the um, uh, boots on the ground, old school style of reporting that I think you know is is fantastic and really important, and it, and it just shows that you know um, we have so many tools uh, available to us and. Um, you know, there's no one, one right way to do things. And oftentimes if we, um, collaborate as we did sort of unofficially, because it wasn't like Ellie and I were, were, were discussing how to do this. Um, you know, I, I think there, there are, uh, a lot of opportunities to do some really fantastic, um, reporting. And I think, you know, the, the New York times visual investigations team is doing a lot of that right now. There's a good mix of their reporters on the ground working with 
Um, they're visual investigators and open source people, um, some of whom have gone from Bellingcat over over there, and and they're doing a lot of great work. Now that just to be to speak more specifically about about that um, that finding, I mean that is one of the I think most important um, uh, pieces of reporting that I've done in my career. It's uh, it's been used that the, you know finding that launch site. Um, with with the the assistance of Bellingcat investigators, is something that is is used as evidence in uh, uh, the, the the Dutch case against the four men who were convicted of their involvement in Russia's downing of MH17. Um, you know, I I I didn't realize the importance of it maybe at the time, um, and and I wasn't I wasn't one hundred percent sure when Roland and I left the scene that afternoon that we had found it, we were pretty confident, but we were, um, I think maybe even a little bit shaken up from the soldiers that we had, um, uh, come into contact with there, um, who were clearly, uh, Russian, um, to realize that, you know, what it, what it meant, but eventually, eventually we did. And, um, certainly once the, uh, Dutch investigation confirmed that this was the launch site, um, you know, it, it, it registered with me that this was a, a, a really major development. And I'm, I'm really proud of, of that, of that reporting and, and really happy that, um, you know, I, on a, uh, on a slow morning looked at, uh, uh, Elliot's Twitter and, um, and blog and, and, uh, decided with Roland to, roll the dice and head out to the town of Snizhny and, and, and have a look around. Amazing. Um, Chris, if it's okay with you, I'd love to ask two more questions. I know it means we'll go over time. Absolutely. Yeah. Fabulous. Um, okay. Uh, a lot of people have been asking, Suntob and Lotka have been asking um, what your focus now in Ukraine, uh, what is your focus now in Ukraine? Are you still going to the front line to report? Mm-hmm. I I still go to the front line to report. I'm not there on you know um, every week. I would say I spend about a week there every month. It's it's really difficult to to be on the front line or what the Ukrainians call the zero line, which is the most forward uh, position, um, especially right now while a counteroffensive is underway. Um, that's for several reasons. One, it's it's extremely risky to do so. Um, two, the Ukrainians um, do limit access um, to frontline positions and uh, the units that are involved in the counteroffensive. There's a lot of negotiating that needs to be done in order to access various positions or to uh, embed with, with certain military units or to interview certain soldiers or commanders. Um, but I still do spend uh, quite a bit of time out on the front line and um, you know, I think the other thing is that uh, this is this is a you know the, the the front line of the ground war is in the south and the east, but Russia is waging a war across the country, and that is different from 2014 through 2021. So uh, an example is you know I woke up three times last night to uh, air raid sirens because Russia was firing cruise missiles at Kiev. And so uh, there are there are times where, you know, Kiev feels like the front line or Mikolaev feels like the front line or uh, Dnipro feels like the front line. Um, when Russia attacks with drones and missiles, um, you know, this those are places that are under attack that, you know, the, it's 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 a country that is that is at war. Um, so 
Uh, I still visit the front line of the ground war. Absolutely. I, I, I visit several places where, um, uh, where, where Russia is, is, is targeting them with various, uh, weapons. Um, I'm very focused on what Ukraine's counteroffensive is doing at the moment. I'm also increasingly, or, or sort of getting back to focusing a lot on the political situation. I think as the counteroffensive struggles, and as we near winter and and the uh, ground war likely uh, w- is likely to slow down a little bit, and also as we get into the American uh, campaign season, politics is going to come uh, more into play. And I think this is a war that's gone on now for almost two years, two years come February, which will be here before we all know it. And, and Ukrainians are exhausted and they they may start asking um, and maybe even you know, asking questions of, of their government and their leadership and, and maybe making more demands. Um, one interesting thing that I, I thought was interesting, uh, but one, one, one thing that was really interesting this last week was, was the Ukrainians demand that, uh, the electronic registration of, of officials assets, which was suspended, uh, for security reasons at the start of the invasion be brought back and re and restored. And, and that to me was, was, um, interesting and, and really good of Ukrainian society showing that even despite Russia's war, they want their country to progress and, um, uh, they want some semblance of normalcy and, and, um, and, and that means transparency and continuing to work toward their potential, uh, future membership in the European Union. Um, so working at the financial times, we're actually an organization that is probably spends, um, less time on the front line than say the New York times, the Washington post, and, um, a lot of time focusing on the political and diplomatic situation. So, um, both of those things are what I, I, I spend probably most of my time on, um, even though politics, uh, bleeds into, uh, military. So that can be, um, also reporting on what the United States is, is maybe planning on sending, uh, to Ukraine in terms of, um, weaponry and, and what, uh, Kiev is asking its, its Western allies for. Incredible. Um, just a reminder before I ask the final question that our book club is actually meeting on Chris's book uh, on Sunday. Um, I'm sure one of the mods can put the link to the book club in the chat for anyone who's in the audience right now. You can join that talk um, on Sunday uh, and they're going to be going into more detail about the second half of the book. Um, lastly, Chris, um, Timothy asks, what have been some of your happiest moments in, in Kiev for, from the past six months? We talked too much about conflict and, and horror. Um, what have been some of your most pleasant memories from the last six months? Uh, just from the last six months? Um, well, summer, summer in Ukraine is the absolute best. And if you... If you have spent a summer in Ukraine, you know what I'm talking about. It's the best tomatoes you can possibly imagine. It's, um, you know, uh, the produce that you can get that just tastes 
absolutely fantastic. And, and, uh, everybody outside on the patio and, or, or, or on, uh, Turkanov Island, um, even in wartime, um, you know, people need to unwind and relax. And I think, I'm not sure there has been like one specific moment that has been my favorite, but you know, when, when summer arrived and it was warm and there was, a cool breeze and uh many of my friends and and myself were were all exhausted um but could spend all evening uh out on a on a terrace overlooking the city uh drinking a cocktail or a glass of wine and um just sort of enjoying the moment um when missiles weren't crashing down on the city and uh we weren't on the front line being shot at and and having to report um you know those times are are what i really like um i've got a lot of i've made a lot of really great friends here and i think you know i really do value the time that i get to spend with them and i do try to spend as much time with them as i can and um uh just this this summer was even despite the, the the war really fantastic it was um uh it was pleasant it was largely dry um kiev is i mean despite despite the war it keeps getting better and better there are new restaurants and cafes opening all the time um you know uh people people are trying to go on uh with their daily lives it's it's sort of uh their own their own way of giving the middle finger to russia and and saying that um you can't you know you can wage war against us but um you, you can't destroy us we we will um uh fight on we will we will uh to the extent that we can live our lives um and a lot of that was happening this summer. Um, and, and despite what many people uh, outside of Ukraine may think, and, and I'm uh, sort of, um, I mean, mean many of the people who I kind of bump into when I go back to the U.S., um, who think that war is a monolith and that Kiev is filled with tanks and soldiers and um, because there's a, a military curfew, uh, everything is closed down and uh, you can't do anything. The capital really is a vibrant city where uh, there are still almost, it's, it's almost back to its full capacity of, of, of you know, roughly 3 million people. Um, for example, if I want to go out tomorrow night, a uh, Friday night here in Kiev, I'll probably have to call and make a reservation uh, after we finish up here in order to get a table because people are going out and, and doing things and, and living their lives. Um, anyway, that's that's a long answer to uh, a question that probably uh, Timothy was probably hoping for um, something very, very specific. But um, I just I think in, in a time of war, I really do value any moment that I get to just sit down with my close friends here, um, have uh, have a few hours of of uh, relaxation, maybe a couple of drinks. Maybe there's some music, but there's definitely some good conversation and laughter. And, uh, uh, yeah, those, those are the times that I, that I, uh, I, I really, I really do cherish. I think that's, uh, the perfect end to this. As Timothy says, through horror, we learn to love the small things, uh, in the chat. Yeah. yeah indeed. Um, thank you so much. Uh, Chris, for joining us today. It has been really interesting to talk to you. I know that the book club 
here and the Bellingcat Discord server have really enjoyed reading your book. Um, and I'm sure they'll all have follow-up questions for you, either in the chat here after the stage talk or on social. Um, for anybody listening to the podcast, the link to Christopher's book will be put in the description of this episode. Uh, thank you so, so much, Chris, for joining us today. And uh, thank you to everyone in the audience as well for spending some time with us uh, to talk about uh, Ukraine. Thank you, Charlie. And thank you, everybody, for being here. I, I really appreciate it. And um, it, was, it was a pleasure to speak with all of you. Thank you for listening to the Stage Talk. If you'd like to catch a Stage Talk live where you can ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg slash bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled Dawn by Newer Self and is courtesy of Artlist. <laughs>